Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Good morning! To those of you who are here in the sanctuary, those in the commons, those joining us via the live stream, welcome to First Baptist. Please turn with me your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And uh, hey, just a little disclaimer as we get started, you can maybe tell um, I am not feeling well. It's been a rough week at our household with sickness. Christy's home today, and I'm coming out of it, but not quite out of it yet. And I can already tell from my time in the commons this morning, there's a little brain fog going on at the same time, too, where words are just not coming um, very quickly. So um, Lord willing, um, and with the Lord's help, we'll get through this. And Um, God will have something to say to us. The uh, title for the sermon today is Sad You See, and you'll see why in just a bit. It's been said that if you want to build a big crowd, then teach on sex or the end times. And if you want to build a really big crowd, then teach on sex in the end times, which is exactly what we have here today, a sermon about sex in the end times, sort of. Uh, The text does raise a very real question that many of us have. Will we be married in heaven? And more specifically for Christy, will she be stuck with me for all eternity? Um, In context, this is the third of five confrontations that Jesus has on the Wednesday of Holy Week. And in each confrontation, he's attacked by a different group asking a different question. So let's kind of place this in context. This is one day, Wednesday, five confrontations. First, there was the question of his authority by the Sanhedrin. Then last week, we had the question of paying taxes by the Pharisees and the Herodians. And then today, we have the question of the resurrection by the Sadducees. And with that in mind, would you please stand with me as I read the text? We stand again out of reverence for God's Word and just acknowledging the wonderful gift that it is and its sacred nature. So Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27 says, And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection... When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. 
And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? God, this is such a a quirky passage and goes in some unexpected directions, but it is your inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. You have some very clear truth that you want to speak to us this morning through it. Um, God, please help us to to listen and to obey what your spirit speaks to us today. Um, Thank you for your word. Thank you for heaven. How we look forward to going there. God, we long for that. So God, if nothing else, may we even have a, a fresh vision of what is to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Our text breaks down into two main parts. We have a sad riddle in verses 18 through 23, and then there is a sad response in verses 24 through 27. So a sad riddle, and then Jesus gives a sad response. Let's look at the first of these, the sad riddle. Verse 18 begins, And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. Last week the question was from Pharisees and Herodians. This week it's from another sect of Judaism. You know, we have different denominations, right, in Christianity. Well, Judaism had different denominations or sects. And the Sadducees were one of these. We get some idea of what the Sadducees believed in the book of Acts, chapter 23, verses 6 through 8, when the Apostle Paul was on trial before the Sanhedrin. And um, this is what it says in Acts 23, 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, um, he did a strategic thing. He got them fighting with each other. It says, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, verse 8, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And so we learn from this passage that the Sadducees were a sect of Judaism who did not believe in the afterlife nor the spiritual realm. Their worldview was basically, hey, what you see is what you get. The physical universe, um, they were were annihilationists. Once your life is done, you're done. Um, Which was very much in contrast to the worldview of the Pharisees. And when we put the two groups side by side in chart form, we see on the left side the Sadducees, they belonged to the privileged minority who had the power and the law on their side whereas the Pharisees represented the working class and had the power of the people on their side. The Sadducees were the elite of Jewish society. The Sadducees ruled in the temple. Um, This was the group who kind of controlled what was going on there. And so when Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers and sent sent the people out, this is the group that was impacted the most, whereas the Pharisees were more localized and ruled in the local synagogues. The Sadducees recognized the authority of the five books of Moses only. That's very important to our discussion today. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, that was their Bible. 
whereas the Pharisees recognized all the writings of the Old Testament plus oral tradition. And then the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. We just saw Acts 23.8 that mentioned, uh, whereas the Pharisees very much believed in the resurrection. And so you've probably heard before, a fun little way to remember what the Sadducees believe is that um, based on their lack of belief in the resurrection and the afterlife, it made them sad, you see. Oh, see? That's good. That's good. You'll never forget, right? So it should also be noted, again, that the Sadducees ran the temple. They were the ones who were primarily exploiting the worshipers. So when Jesus cleansed the temple, they were the ones most impacted. Well, here comes the riddle in the second half of verse 18. They asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote, now that's significant, why? Because again, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Five, five. This is something we've covered before. You'll see why in a moment. Deuteronomy 25.5 says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This came to be known as the law of leverate, leverate meaning husband's brother marriage. The idea was that the nearest unmarried male relative would marry a widow so that she might not be left destitute and so that the family line, the family name would continue. Um, this male was known as the kinsman redeemer, in Hebrew, the goel. And that was the principle at work in our study of what book of the Bible? the book of Ruth, right? Remember, Boaz, so that she would not be left destitute. And so you can see how those pieces fit together. So this law of leverate marriage is the basis for the question being asked by the Sadducees, all right? They're going back to their Bible, their five books, the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, but they're going to employ something known as absurdum ad rectio, and I only throw that in today to try to impress my son, who graduates from law school in two months. Um, this is a law school kind of thing. It's a Latin phrase, which literally means reduction to the absurd. It's a form of argument that attempts to establish a claim by showing that the opposite scenario would lead to absurdity or contradiction. And so here's the strategy of the Sadducees. They're going to attempt to make Jesus look like a fool by trapping him in an absurd scenario, rooted in his beliefs and teachings on the resurrection and the afterlife, which, again, the Sadducees reject. So they're going to set Jesus. Here comes the absurd scenario in verse 20. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise... And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Jesus, in this so-called resurrection that you teach, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And so again, this is that law of leverate marriage, which 
Sadducees, Pharisees, Jesus, they could all agree on that, but it is that law to an absurd degree. In essence, they're saying, Jesus, we're going to show you just how foolish your belief in the resurrection really is, for there really is a resurrection, as you say, when it comes to the law of liberate marriage, who will be married to whom in the afterlife? Specifically, how can one woman be married to seven men in heaven? Again, Jesus, don't you see how silly this resurrection thing is? And the goal of the Sadducees was to show the crowds how silly Jesus really was. So then they might conclude that Jesus was a fool. Which brings to a conclusion that first main section in our outline, which is the sad riddle. How can one woman and seven men be married in heaven? The second main section is a sad response. Look with me at verse 24. This is where Jesus gives his response. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Two times in the passage, Jesus plainly tells the Sadducees that they are wrong. The first one is here in verse 24. The second one is in verse 27, where he actually tells them, in concluding the passage, that they are quite wrong. Well, why exactly were the Sadducees wrong? Look at the second half of verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. So the first reason the Sadducees were quite wrong was that they were ignorant of God's Word. They were ignorant of God's Word, which is quite understandable when you think about it, um, since they considered only the writings of Moses and the first five books of the Bible as authoritative. Now, don't get me wrong, the Pentateuch, that's a wonderful foundational section of Scripture. It is a treasure. We're so glad to have it. But if that's all you have, if you're missing the other for us, what, 61 books of the Bible, then your theology is going to have some significant gaps. And such was the case with the Sadducees. They would have missed much of what the Old Testament does say about the resurrection and the afterlife. For example, they would have missed what the book of Job says about the afterlife in Job 19.25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. In this passage, we see definite notes of the resurrection. They would have missed it because they didn't acknowledge that as authoritative. They would have also missed Psalm 16, 9 through 11. Um, the psalmist says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures for how long? Forevermore. They would have missed that one as well. They also missed Daniel 12 too, which says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. They would have also missed Psalm 49, 15, Psalm 73, 24, Psalm 139, verse 8, all of which speak 
of the resurrection and the afterlife. And so because of this, they are ignorant of God's Word. And when we are ignorant of God's Word, we come to some very wrong conclusions, don't we? Why else were the Sadducees wrong? Well, they were also wrong because they were ignorant of God's power. They were ignorant of God's power. Back to verse 24 again, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Why were they ignorant of the power of God? Because, again, they had that what you see is what you get worldview which focused on the physical realm. They didn't believe in the spiritual realm. They didn't believe in the supernatural. Instead, they lived as if this visible, physical universe was all that there is, is all that is real. Which, interestingly, if you took the five books of Moses seriously, how do those books begin? What's the very first verse? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He did it by the word of his mouth. And so the very first verse of this is supernatural. God's omnipotence, his power on display. And so if if God, as demonstrated in the Pentateuch, is powerful enough to create, might he be powerful enough to resurrect the dead? Absolutely. Further, um, if they're taking the Pentateuch seriously, um, the Pentateuch contains stories of the flood, the parting of the Red Sea, and all the miracles that took place in the wilderness. What about that supernatural power of God? So again, um, for as much as they give lip service to the Word of God and the Pentateuch, they certainly have some blind spots. Surely the God who can do all of those things that were just mentioned can raise the dead. Can't he? Absolutely. But sadly, um, I, I use this illustration a lot because I think it's just very visual and it is how many of us operate. It's how the Sadducees operate. Uh, the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson was a Sadducee in essence. He literally used a razor to cut out the parts of the New Testament that were miraculous or supernatural, including the resurrection, much as a Sadducee would. He would have been a very good Sadducee. He cut out anything that had to do with the supernatural or the power of God. And we might want to ask ourselves, do we do the same thing when it comes to how we really live our lives? So, Why exactly were the Sadducees wrong? They were ignorant of God's word. They were ignorant of God's power. And so Jesus sets out to correct their ignorance in regard to the nature of marriage and the afterlife in verse 25 where he says, For when they rise from the dead, he's referring to the the woman, all the husbands, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. When they rise from the dead, they, are neither, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Part of the problem with the argument of the Sadducees is that they assumed the belief that the Pharisees had about the resurrection. They, they, they used that theory that everything will just continue as it is 
on earth will be the way it is in heaven, um, specifically in regard to marriage. So whatever your marital status was, whatever marriage was like on earth is how marriage will be in heaven. But Jesus says, you know, that's, that's flawed thinking. Instead, there will not be marriage in heaven as we know it on earth. How's that hit you? Probably a, a wide variety of responses. For some of you, this is a great disappointment. For others of you, it might be a great relief. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Not naming any names. Um, here's what I don't think it means. I, I don't think it means that we won't know our spouses or that we may not even know them on a different level than everyone else. But make no mistake, as Jesus says, it won't be like it is here on earth. Rather, the afterlife will be a brand new existence with brand new relationships. The afterlife will be a brand new existence with brand new relationships. Now, be assured... This will not be disappointing when you're there and experiencing it. We will not in any way be disappointed with this brand new existence and these brand new relationships and will in fact surpass anything and everything we have experienced here on earth. John MacArthur describes it like this. I appreciate the perspective. He says, we will perfectly love God and each other and be able to worship God in holy perfection. We will have perfect knowledge. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. We will be perfectly motivated to do perfect service, rendering perfect obedience. The redeemed will never be weary, tired, bored, discouraged, or disappointed, but will experience eternally undiminished joy, unmarred by any sadness or sorrow, because God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer, no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? Anybody ready to go? I, I might circle back for a moment and say, just to, to clarify, we won't become angels. doesn't say that. What Jesus says is in regard to this specific issue of marriage, we will be like angels who are neither given in marriage, who are not given in marriage. Jesus continues his correction of the Sadducees in verse 26, where he says, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? A little jab. And the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him. So this is, this is in essence, this is a mic drop moment for Jesus, okay? Um, where he will punctuate his sad response to their sad riddle by using their own Pentateuch to prove the resurrection. 
Remember that this is the Pentateuch that the Sadducees claim as authoritative. And he appeals to the story of Moses and the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where God shows up, God is speaking to Moses, and as we go back to Mark 12, 26, the second part of that verse, saying, this is what God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, close quote. And so then Mark 12, 27 continues, He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The key here is the usage of the present tense. I am presently the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I presently have personal relationship with all three of them. But how can that be if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all dead? Because they live. Because they live. Because there really is a resurrection and an afterlife. A key truth that the Sadducees either missed or ignored in their beloved Pentateuch. Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. So that is the account of this third confrontation on the Wednesday of Holy Week. A sad riddle and a sad response. Um, we got a couple extra minutes this morning. Um, we'll do this. It's always kind of clunky, but I love to hear from you periodic when time per- permits. I'm going to take this microphone and... Um, who would have some input this morning and say, you know what, as we talk about application, this is how the Holy Spirit is talking to me about how this passage applies to our lives. Anybody have something they would share? And I will actually run this microphone to you, and that'll work actually well for the uh, commons as well. Um, But how is the Holy Spirit speaking to you this morning about application in regard to this text? So what? So what? Anybody want to chime in? Don't leave me hanging. Don't leave me hanging. I'll call on you. Oh, good. Thank you for... You've been there, haven't you? Yeah. yeah. Well, to, uh, to go where angels fear to tread, it's always been my opinion in this aspect of, of sex, marriage, and the afterlife. Um, God giving us new bodies, new, new minds. My opinion is that as... as um, as God has given us the sexual relationship in marriage as being uh, the most intimate peace between a man and a woman, the two become one flesh. In the kingdom to come, we will be able to have intimacy with one another without that physical aspect. So we will know one another in a way that is even deeper and more intimate that only sexual relationships in marriage allow us today. Oh, I appreciate that. And you know, you think about all the obstacles that exist in us truly knowing each other, including our pride, our sin, our guilt, our shame, our, and there's just so much that gets in the way, not only between a husband and a wife, and you think about the Garden of Eden with uh, Adam and Eve and the fig leaves and how they're covering their guilt, um, all that gone for us to, to truly be known and to know and the intimacy that will result of that for all of us with everyone in that way is certainly, um, it's a mystery, but again, something that far surpasses anything that we currently understand in this life, in the here and now. Thank you for that. What else? What, what does this passage have to do with you? 
You go to work on Monday morning, you go to school on Monday morning, you do your thing on Monday morning, so what? So what? Somebody else? Go ahead. Yeah, that I don't. I'm just so glad that the Sadducees are wrong. Yeah. That I can look forward to heaven, and that resurrection with Jesus. That's what gives us hope, right? Can you imagine? This is it. This is as good as it gets, which helps us to understand in part. I, 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 as we were looking at, you know, the exploitation of religious pilgrims in the temple, it's like, how could anybody do that with a clear conscience? You know, how could anybody just be so evil that they're taking advantage of worshipers and doing this thing? And it's like, they don't, they don't care because this is it. You know, there, are, there will be no consequence as far as they're concerned. Yes. I think that two points of being ignorant of God's word and ignorant of his power. They've lost everything if they don't have that, and yet they're blinded to the truth. We see the consequences, right, of being ignorant to God's word. We look in our culture and society, we see the consequences of being ignorant to God's word and the faulty conclusions that we make. But we must also be aware of the faulty conclusions we come to and how we live when we're ignorant of God's power. So let me uh, bring mine to the table here, which that's a great segue. How should we then live? Um, pretty clear that we want to use the Sadducees as a negative example of what not to do. They were ignorant of God's word and God's power. We don't want that. So instead of being ignorant of God's word, the opposite of that is to immerse ourselves in God's word. To immerse ourselves in God's word. Like uh, the image that I think of is like, like a sponge, right? Letting it fill every pore of our being, every nook and cranny of our hearts and our minds to the point of saturation so that it then naturally oozes from our pores into how we live and into the lives of others. Uh, the Jews took this very seriously. Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verse 6, this is in that uh, passage known as the Shema. Listen to how seriously they took immersion in God's Word. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The, the, the point being made there is God's Word is to be constantly, constantly in us, on us, around us, with us, wherever we go, whatever we do, a constant companion. But that doesn't happen by itself, does it? And that's why this was such a foundational passage of Scripture the Shema for the Jews, because it gave them clear instructions like, do these things so that you are continually immersing yourselves in God's Word, and not just yourself, but your children, the future generations. For it to happen, for us to immerse ourselves in God's Word, we must be very, very intentional. And so this is where the disciplines of things like hear journals, of Scripture 
meditation and Scripture memorization are so crucial because they are tools, God-given tools for immersing ourselves in God's Word. And what joy it has brought me as a pastor to see the fruit of that in people's lives being played out as people are taking Scripture memorization seriously, that it's not just for Awana kids, but it's for all of God's children. His Word have we hidden in our hearts that we might not sin against Him. If we were serious about holiness, we're going to be serious about Scripture memory. If we're serious about spiritual warfare, we're going to be serious about Scripture memory. Because I'll tell you what, Satan knows the Bible. His demons know the Bible better than you do. And so when they come to attack, and you're like, oh, I think it says somewhere something about something, you kind of know how that's going to play out, right? My question for all of us this morning would be this. What is the one next thing that God would have you do to more deeply immerse yourself in His Word? The one next thing. Next, in rejecting the negative example of the Sadducees, rather than be ignorant of God's power, we must immerse ourselves in God's power. And the agent of God's power in our lives is what? It's His Spirit. His Holy Spirit. The presence of God Almighty who resides in every believer. He is the source of power. Um, and much as we use that image of the sponge in regard to visualizing our immersion in God's Word, so it is a picture of immersing ourselves in the Spirit, and letting Him fill every pore of our being, our minds, our hearts, to the point of saturation, so that the Spirit then overflows from our lives into the lives of others. And Ephesians 5.18 says this, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Notice that to be filled with the Spirit is not just something that happens passively, not just something that happens accidentally. It's a command. Be filled. It is something in which we have a role and a participation. And the first step and being filled with the Spirit is to be emptied of everything else, right? The first step in being filled with the Spirit is to be emptied of everything else. The Spirit can't fill space that's already occupied. And I think that's the problem for, for, for many of us. I, I, I ask for the Spirit to fill me, but um, we're filled with other stuff, primarily with self, the space is occupied with self-centeredness, with self-focus, with self-fulfillment. We can't be filled with self and be filled with the Spirit. Therefore, the first step in being filled with the Spirit is to be emptied of everything else. But then, the second step in being filled with the Spirit is to ask for it. We truly have not because we ask not. My Bible tells me, that, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? 
Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? There are certain prayers, certain requests. We don't have to wonder if they're God's will. But this is one of them. We know God's will. God's will is for you to be filled with His Spirit, to be immersed to saturation so that you are not living in the flesh, but you are living by the power of His Holy Spirit. It is God's will for each and every one of His children. But it comes down to that question, will you ask Him? Will you ask Him to fill you with His Spirit? And so we are to reject the negative example of the Sadducees rather than be ignorant of God's Word and ignorant of God's power, we are to be immersing ourselves in God's Word and immersing ourselves in God's power. Let me close with this thought. I I share this with you from time to time, but it's that whole idea of being a both-and church, that while most churches tend to be either-or, either Scripture or power, either truth or Spirit, now the sad thing is I see more and more churches are neither I think it used to be churches were like one or the other, either or, but more and more churches are like neither Scripture nor power. But I believe this church is uniquely positioned to be a both-and church that emphasizes both Scripture and power. And I believe that's why many of you are here, is it not? And that's why I'm excited to be here. Let us continue to pray that God would grow us to fulfill every bit of our potential for being a both-and church. Let's pray. Father, um, may there be nothing of the Sadducees in us. Take away our ignorance of your word. Take away our ignorance of your power. I confess, God, that as a church, Um, We definitely lean in the direction of excelling more in your word than in your power. And I thank you, God, for this church's hunger for your word. But God, would you give us an even greater, not even greater, but give us a greater hunger for your, your spirit, for your power. It is a both-and scenario, not an either-or. And so, God, would you grow us in this respect? Grow us personally, individually, but also collectively, corporately, as a family, as a community. May there be increasing numbers of testimonies and stories of your Holy Spirit coming and doing what only your Holy Spirit can do. Because we take our Bibles so seriously that we see that you are a God who works miracles. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Forgive us for taking our own razor blades metaphorically in our minds and cutting out the supernatural, the miraculous, and not expecting that our God can do today what he did then. God, there are many people within the sound of my voice this morning who need a miracle. God, I pray that 
you would show up big in ways that only you can, and that you would lead them through whatever trial they're going through, whatever giant they face, and that there might be great testimonies that come out of the tests that they're going through. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.